Hello and welcome back to another episode of Different Strokes, a percussion podcast. This week, our guest is Emily Tanner Patterson. Emily Tanner Patterson is a percussion educator and clinician. She was previously the percussion director at the Rouse High School and Wiley Middle School in Leander, Texas from 2015 until 2018, and was the percussion director at Eastview High School in Georgetown, Texas from 2011 until 2015. Her ensembles have garnered numerous accolades, including winning the 2016 PAS International Percussion Ensemble Contest. Patterson holds a master's degree in percussion performance, as well as a bachelor's degree in music education. Undergraduate performance certificate in percussion from the University of Texas at Austin, where she studied with Thomas Burrett and Tony Edwards. Patterson is an educational endorser for innovative percussion sticks and mallets, Remo drumheads, and Zildjian cymbals. She holds professional memberships in the Texas Music Educators Association and the Percussive Arts Society and serves on the PAS Education Committee. In addition to remaining active in the percussion community, Patterson works as a learning designer at Cambridge University Press in Cambridge, England. Please welcome this week, Emily Tanner Patterson. Well, I'm so excited to see you. It's been a long time. Um, and Very my, long time. Yeah. So um, my guest is Emily Tanner Patterson, and she's joining us uh, from England. And so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are now and what what exactly you're doing in England? <laughs> yeah, so our, our family had a really cool opportunity about 15, 16 months ago um, to move to the UK. And it was something that my husband and I had talked about uh, before we even got married, how we would love to live overseas and have our children experience different cultures. Obviously, we didn't have children at that point, but now we have two. Um, and uh, it was it was kind of a situation where everything came together in exactly the right way to make it possible. So there are moments in your life where you know that the universe is sending you a message that something is supposed to happen. And this was one of those times. Um, and so we bit the bullet and took the leap, if you will, um, or the plane, more appropriately, um, across the pond and uh, brought at that time we had our daughter was two and a half and we brought our two dogs and our two cats and a fair amount of our stuff and uh, moved to Cambridge. And so my husband um, is a software engineer. He's working for a biotech startup called Bios Health. They are designing um, the interface between uh, like your, um, your prosthetic and the human body. So really, really cool cutting edge biotech work. Um, they're in, in clinical trials phases right now. And I, about, let's see, end of February, I got the opportunity to start working at Cambridge University Press, um, which is a nonprofit arm of Cambridge University um, as a learning designer, which essentially means that I'm a person who works in online learning. And um, so I designed the learning. Literally, that's what a learning designer does. It's also called an instructional designer sometimes. Um, there's different lingo. Um, and so I'm in a developmental role where I didn't have any previous online learning experience. They wanted someone with a lot of success in classroom teaching um, who has really strong pedagogy and they could train into the online learning portion. Um, so I've done... I've launched two courses so far. One was a custom course for the university um, for uh, one of the engineering professors um, working in, uh, let's see, 
how should I put it, um, circuit design and um, and board design, and then a embedded systems is what it's called. Um, and then I did another course this summer with an external partner arm, which is one of the largest semiconductor chip designers in the world. Um, and they're headquartered here in Cambridge. And we launched an edX course uh, actually just a couple weeks ago. Um, I missed out on the last couple weeks of the course because I went on maternity leave. Um, but uh, we launched a, an, another course on embedded systems. So I've done a lot of engineering work and I have begged my supervisors for something not engineering when I come off of maternity leave. Um, but so anyway, it's been a really great opportunity to work at a really great company um, and design, just learn how to design courses for higher education. Um, and like I said, we're we're not a course mill. We're not turning out edX courses every other week. Uh, we do custom work for the university and for local partners. We're a very small team. There's seven of us right now. Two of us are on maternity leave, um, and so we're still working on developing our own platform for commercialized courses in partnership with the university. Um, but obviously what we do is highly applicable to the current global situation. So uh, somehow I stumbled onto the most popular um, course or uh, professional pathway you could imagine um, within about a month of when I started working was when we went into lockdown. And some of my friends were like, wow, you just managed to land like the, the most applicable job in the world. Um, yes, my job security is through the roof. So it's great. Um, but it's actually been uh, really great because there's been so much information coming out about teaching online and so many discussions around teaching online that it's been a really valuable learning opportunity for me. And also a valuable opportunity to immediately give back to the music education committee uh, community um, since I'm learning all this stuff sort of one step ahead of everyone else. Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> that sounds incredible, though. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you've what you've done um, well, in the music world and how that's been able to translate into what you're doing now, like some of the skill sets that um, you've kind of transferred between the two. Yeah, so I think I think anyone who works in kind of the percussion education world knows that, that you know, we're not really taking the blue book and going straight through it. And, and that's true of, of all really good band directors is um, we, if you'll pardon the use of a British word, we bespoke our curriculums for our students. Um, so we customize everything. And particularly in the six through 12 world, there's not a whole lot, six through 12 percussion world, there's not a whole lot that you can just buy off the shelf and implement in your classroom. You're always um, tweaking and collating and writing yourself and adapting. Um, and so I spent, you know, gosh, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years teaching private lessons, teaching front ensemble, working with indoor drum lines and marching bands at, while I was getting my music ed degree and my master's degree. Um, and then I spent another seven years as a six through 12 percussion director um, in Georgetown ISD and Leander ISD. And what I developed during that time was a strong sense of like pedagogy and curriculum. And that's kind of been uh, my expertise within the percussion world is, is understanding the sequence that of how to create successful uh, 
uh, teaching six through 12 in a sequential and and, uh, pedagogically sound manner and how to structure your program such that students are achieving certain skill sets in in a structured manner along the way. Um, And so that's kind of been, you know, my mission to give back to the percussion world is is we need to think about this. You know, (laughs) it's really easy to go, well, I'm going to do, you know, this on this day because you have three days a week of 45 minutes with your seventh graders. But if we really want to, you know, create consistent success within our programs, then we need to impose like the structure on our curriculum and, and, uh, oh, hello puppy. Um, yeah. and, and, and so anyway, that's sort of been my mission for the last few years. Um, and I'm sort of like halfway through writing a curriculum that, um, got grounded when I got this new job and then, you know, two kids doesn't leave a lot of time for anything someday. Someday I'll finish that curriculum. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so what I was able to kind of bring to the online teaching thing as I, I was translating, oh yeah, it took me, I had been out of the classroom like, again, almost two years, year and a half when I started this new job. And so for me, it took me about a month to like remember <laughs> all my classroom teaching mojo and uh oh yeah hey i do know how to do this thing um and then maybe another month or six weeks to kind of figure out okay well this is how you shift your perception uh, with online teaching uh so a lot of the structure stuff is the same but how it's presented is very different so instead of you know having a teacher direct you for a certain amount of time every day in a really successful online teaching world uh, the the teacher is providing information in very short snippets and is providing a set of structured activities that supports the learning that the teacher is trying to present so it might be you know instead of an hour in the classroom or an hour and a half in the classroom or 45 minutes depending on the grade level you're teaching um you might have an assignment sequence that goes introductory reading watch teacher video uh do some kind of responsive writing activity um then you might watch a video on youtube or listen to a podcast and then apply that via a set of questions and that might be make up your hour or two hours because you're kind of including homework time um of your learning sequence um and so the idea of structuring pedagogy and curriculum it still applies no matter where the mode of teaching is i think the stumbling block that we're seeing right now within the pandemic response is that especially in the younger grades we're trying to apply a model of classroom instruction where the kid is in front of the teacher. We're importing that over to a screen where the kid is in front of the screen. It doesn't work that way in the online world, at least not successful online learning. Um, now, I know that's really hard for parents to hear where they're looking for childcare for their youngest kids and they're saying, well, my child's at home. You know, I need someone watching them so that I can work. Well, I, I get that. But at the same time, sticking your kid in front of Zoom or, you know, uh, whatever for eight hours a day isn't going to result in eight hours a day of learning. It's going to result in a whole lot of, of apathy. Um, and so everyone's kind of in a rock and a hard place um, with with the current situation. But in an ideal online learning environment, that's kind of what the structure would look like, is that the contact teacher to student doesn't necessarily come through synchronous 
video-led conferencing. It comes through this series of structured activities that are designed to, to spark the learning. And what I also find really interesting about online learning is that uh, you have to impose a lot of faith in the, the learner. Uh, and what I mean by that is if the learner wants to learn, they will learn. And if they don't want to learn, they're not going to complete the activities and they're not going to learn. And ultimately, hey, guess what? The classroom is a lot like that, too. Um, it's just we have we can literally force their presence <laughs> and we can force a certain set of behaviors in the classroom that we you know, we have to, to let go of that in the online learning world. And I think returning that motivation back towards the learner could be a really fantastic outcome of all of this. Even if we go back to face-to-face -to -face primary education, I think we've gotten too far away from, from having faith in our learners to be motivated um, and em empowering learners to be motivated to get what they need out of learning. Um, and, and not use grades as cudgels and standardized tests as, as punitive measures. But now I'm straying onto my soapbox, so I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great information. And it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And it's just good to hear somebody who's out there putting stuff together for this particular issue that we're having and seeing the results and seeing um, more appropriate ways to, to handle it. Because... Um, you know, I'm in that situation here in the U.S. where I'm still teaching and we're being told to do all these different things. And um, this is where I think it's one of the blessings of being a millennial is that I understand all the software we're using. I understand the tech. and um, But my biggest thing is that I see so many times, and at least in our education system over here, where we are provided all these tools, we're provided all these things, all these gadgets, and it's still, it clouds everything. And that's like the bottom line of, you know, how are we teaching the kids? And how are we understanding how they learn? Because we could feed them all these different tools, but it becomes a monster and we don't want it to become a monster. And um, it's great to hear that because I've kind of had this mindset going in where I think there's a lot of opportunity to showcase that our students are going to be more than capable of learning the material we put in front of them. We don't have to do things like we did in the past. They're actually going to have time to digest things, but you have to do it in small doses. Otherwise, it's going to overwhelm everybody. So I'm I'm excited to hear that. That makes me feel much better. Um, and I'm sure for people listening to that are maybe um, teachers right now or want, wanting to be a teacher or even students that are listening, I'm sure that they're going to feel a lot of comfort in hearing that. Yeah, the reality is you don't need eight hours a day to learn. In fact, when you look at homeschool guidance guidelines, they they offer in the youngest years um, one hour per grade level. So like if your kid's in first grade, you're only supposed to do like an hour of homeschooling a day. And my daughter is now three and a half and we're a Montessori family. And part of lockdown is I did a lot of research into like Montessori learning. Sorry, little boy's waking up. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Montessori learning and how it functions and the mentality and um, a lot of it is like you don't expect the kid to sit down and necessarily digest this lesson today 
and and I'm in some Montessori Facebook groups and people ask frequently, well, I'm, I'm wanting to home educate my child. They're this age. Can someone point me to a curriculum? Well, it doesn't work that way. Montessori doesn't work that way. It's a set of activities and you trust the learner to encounter what they're ready to learn, when they're ready to learn it and when they need it. And so like right now, my daughter's class all she want all they those kids want to do is language activities so even though the teacher presents a variety they're allowed to gravitate towards what they want to learn and there is faith that they will get to numbers when they're ready and they will do practical life when they're ready and i think that's just fabulous and it's certainly a heck of a lot easier when she's home and she wants to do you know the thomas the tank engine puzzles for the fifth time today and she does them herself um, I know she's getting something out of that. And it's not me sitting there going with a three and a half year old. Like, I'm sorry, try to get a three and a half year old to do anything that I want to do. <laughs> but I'm not the one sitting there going, uh, you know, trying to do flashcards, you know, on her letter sounds. And instead, when she wants to pull out the tray that has the letter sounds and the objects, she does it herself. And she asks for help when she needs help. And then she helps me fold the laundry. My three and a half year old can fold her own laundry (laughs) because she wants to, not because I made her, you know? All right. So imagine this, you're with your group, they're warming up and your students are ready to throw down. And the last thing you want to deal with is wireless mics not syncing or the soundboard not functioning correctly. And then the next thing you know, you're scrambling and trying to figure out what you're going to do when you're moving all your equipment and all your kids and your parent volunteers to get up to the performance. Well, all of these moving parts come built into marching arts audio, and it can become very frustrating very fast. Pit Hacks is the simple solution to marching arts audio. Sound design, equipment installations, and educational workshops. That's probably the key thing there. Educational workshops in Mainstage, Logic Pro, and Ableton Live. They do it all, and they'll teach you how to do it as well. End the headaches now and get back to teaching and take the field with confidence by hiring Pit Hacks Professional today. Hacks.com. That's P-I-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. I was going to say, i got to imagine that being, um, well, being in a different country exposes you to, obviously, different uh, traditions, different ways of handling things. I'm sure that's something you've noticed. And I mean, it's something that you have the time to embrace as well now with the pandemic. So um, it's a great, great time to really take a step back and look at what we're doing and reevaluating how we should handle our family and how we should handle education. Um, So it's pretty exciting in in that sense. so, you know, what is, what's been kind of your schedule, your routine, because you, you know, you're working, I'm assuming you're working from home with the, the digital stuff since February when you started. Um, and what's that been like for you with, um, I would say, learning how to balance work life at home and home life at home <laughs> for you? <laughs> well, we, uh, we've, it's kind of been like an unending transition in our family because I was in the office for about five weeks, at which point about a week before the UK went on to lockdown, where my bosses, my manager and my team lead said to me, you're pregnant, you're working from home now um, because they, they didn't want to risk me getting sick. Um, And then about a week later, the whole country was working from home. And in the UK, there are a number of government supports that 
were not offered in the U.S., um, one of which being if you were put on furlough, the government covered 80% of your salary up to a certain figure. Um, so uh, I wasn't furloughed. My husband was furloughed, but not until recently. Um, so like July. Uh, so anyway, our family schedule shifted because I went into five days a week of work and then all of a sudden we were all home. Um, and so I, I would do, you know, kid care in the mornings uh, until about one o'clock. And then I would work from one until six or so. So my husband and I were trading off, which the UK government basically said to employers, you have to support these people who have caring responsibilities by allowing them to work the schedule they need to work. Um, and luckily my team was totally fine with it. My team, my manager was in a similar position because she has two kids. Um, and everybody just rolled with it and we all got our jobs done, um, which is amazing. You treat adults like adults and, and they produce. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, and then we came out of lockdown and my daughter went back to school full time or to nursery full time. And then I went on maternity leave uh, about four weeks ago because child number two arrived. Um, and so we've just kind of been through this set of rolling transitions. So right now... I'm on maternity leave. Um, so that means that I have no set schedule because my schedule is dictated to me by this tiny three and a half week old dictator um, <laughs> who who has needs that, that can't wait. Uh, but I've, I've returned to taking my daughter to nursery in the morning. So we try to get out the door by about 830. Um, I walk everywhere here, which is amazing. It's totally different from being in the U.S. where you're hopping in your car just to go to the corner store. Um, we have a car, but we hardly ever use it. Uh, so it's about a 20 minute walk each way to nursery. I get my exercise in, we get a little extra time and fresh air in the morning. And, um, and then, you know, I spend my days when she's home trying to keep up with her and on the days that she's not home trying to keep up with the other one. Um, while I'm also trying to spend some time doing some, you know, some further reading about Montessori stuff, um, we're sort of preparing in case there's another lockdown. Uh, so I'm trying to get out ahead of the bell curve this time, um, since there are two of them now. <laughs> and yeah. my husband, my husband is home right now as well, um, working a little bit, but also uh, helping out, you know, with the tiny human and the small human. Um, uh, but it's still, it's still, you know, everybody wants mom. Yeah. And I'm mom. So, so it's a lot, it's a lot. Um, but hopefully we'll get into a better routine within a, within a few weeks. Um, yeah. That was my experience with my daughter was it takes about six to eight weeks to settle into a real routine. So now do you consider yourself, um, for, from the creative side, do you consider yourself a, a night owl or a morning person when it comes to getting your work done or, or trying to get things going? I was a, a night owl for the longest time. And then I started teaching band. And, you know, those 7 a.m. sectionals have a way of changing your biorhythms. And I I would now, and I, you know, of course I love sleeping in. But I also love seeing the sunrise and that sense of accomplishment when you've actually gotten a whole lot done before noon. So I can go either way. I find that if I'm arranging, this, the depths of night is, is the best time. But I don't do that very much anymore. Um, and now I have absolutely no control over my schedule. You know, I'm 
people have to be places at times, whether it's in bed asleep or dinner on the table or at nursery. So I don't get to choose anymore. Yeah. So I have no, I have no idea what it would actually be if I actually uh, could just go with my own impulses. Cause um, yeah, family life, it has a way of just setting all those structures up for you. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so speaking of, um, structures, uh, what do you do for leisure time? I mean, when you do get some time away, what's like your go-to thing? What's that? Uh, it, you know, definitely the, the streaming video is, is, um, like by the end of the day, especially parents of chatty young kids will understand what I mean. Like my daughter's amazing but she wants to talk and she wants to ask questions. And there is this amazing double standard that small children possess where if you ask them a question, they can ignore you completely and it's no big deal. If they ask you a question and you take more than two seconds to start to answer, they will repeat the question again and again and again and again. And so we're still working on some of those social niceties of mom needs a minute to finish this before I can do that. Um, And hey, if you ask me a question, you probably shouldn't interrupt me while I'm answering with another question because I can only do one thing at a time. (laughs) So um, by eight o'clock when she's asleep, I don't want to think, I don't want to talk to anyone, I don't want to send an email, I don't want to uh, try to string two words together. I want to open my iPad, I want to start some dumb TV show on Netflix, and I want to play Cat Crunch or scroll on Facebook. And then, <laughs> and then I probably need to go to bed by 10 because the tiniest dictator will be up in the middle of the night wanting to be fed. Yeah. So unfortunately, I wish I could say that I was, you know, having this wonderful intellectual um, ramblings at night, you know, reading this, that and the other or taking online courses. And I would love to be able to do that. But at some point, you know, I'm up three times a night. So uh, I am only human. I I do hope (laughs) to get back to some of those things while I'm on maternity leave. I have all these grand goals for my maternity leave. But uh, right now I'm in survival mode. Um, So anyway, yeah. When you think of um, success and you think of the word, what is your definition and how do you measure it? I think success is each person like has to have their own measure of success. And mine has changed over the years. You know, of course, there were many years where my success was professional in nature and I wanted to win this contest or grow my program in this way or do this activity really, really well. Um, or have my students do this activity really, really well. Um, you know, and even as a teacher, aside from, from, sorry, (laughs) that's okay. Flashing red there. Um, (laughs) even as a teacher, you know, part of, to me, success was that my students were really good human beings and that they loved music. So it wasn't always about the wins or the trophies or anything else. Um, but uh, the older I got, the more I thought about, well, you know, I also want to have a family and I want to get yeah. married and um, that's that's going to require some, some changes. Um, and, you know, for me, I think about success and I think about people, you know, people in my life, like Robert Saladin, 
the head director of the Leander Band program, he and I were in college together. We were in the same student teaching class. Now, most people would look at Robert and say, well, he's incredibly professionally successful, you know, top 10 at BOA Grain Nats and All-Staters and blah, blah, blah. What stands out to me about Robert is that he is one of the most professionally upstanding people I know. Um, Kindness is a core tenant of the Leander Band program. Caring is a core tenant. And Robert doesn't buy into, you know, um, the flash of, of we do these things to look good or we do these things, we collect these trophies to tell us we're successful. Robert is really all about experience, uh, the students' experience and them having, you know, not just a good time, but a, a fantastic education as a byproduct, um, or as the product rather, not a not as a byproduct, um, and turning out, you know, like really good people as well. And Robert's a really good person, um, and you know, there are people I know that that are Texas band directors who look really successful who I would not say they are really good people, or. Um, I would say that, you know, they look great on paper, but there's not a lot of substance behind what they do. Robert is a person of great substance and great professionalism and just a really great human being. And he also happens to be incredibly successful by most metrics of, you know, contests and trophies. Um, at the same time, I also look at my, my very dear friend, Allie Carraher, and I say that she's a great success because she knew when it was time to get out of band directing. Um, she's handled some pretty heavy personal crises and come out a stronger person on the other side. And she's successfully navigated her way out of band directing and into you know, a successful career in, in her and her husband's family business. And she's a happy person, you know? I mean, isn't that what we should all want in life to be happy people? (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) Well, I was just having this conversation with my husband, uh, before we got online, but this, this punitive model we have in modern education, where we tell kids, if you don't make X grade, you don't do X activity, you're not going to be able to get into X college and, and have X profession. And then you won't have the life you want. Like it's, BS. It's total and utter BS. You know, is is the person who delivers my groceries less of a person because they deliver groceries every day? You know, didn't we find out a lot about how essential grocery delivery people are in the <laughs> yeah. middle of the pandemic? You know, <laughs> literally risking their health every single day just to do their jobs, you know. And so I think I think we need to um I think we need to, to really have a conversation about like what does happiness and success look like? And I think that needs to be different for every person. Some people, like they measure their success by their bank account, but there are plenty of people that, that you know, measure this, their success because they had a happy family and their kids are off in the world having happy families and they paid their mortgage at, and were able to retire. Like those are valuable goals. You know, giving back to your community is a valuable goal, et cetera, et cetera, (laughs) you know, and and so there's nothing wrong with those goals as models of success. And then as educators, we go, okay, what are the tools that we need to instill and how do we build a sense of of communalism and a sense of self-sufficiency in our students? And those are the things that are really important, not the subject matter and not where it leads you. 
This episode is brought to you by Mac Designs Digital Marketing. Mac Designs Digital Marketing provides simple solutions to all of your small business marketing needs. Whether you are a tenacious entrepreneur just getting started or you're a boss that is ready to outsource your digital marketing. We're here to help you with all your digital marketing needs, email marketing, social media advertising, website design, and integration. We're a small business that provides big results. Visit www.macdesigns.org backslash DS for $500 off your first month of service. That's right. That is www.macdesigns.org backslash DS for $500 off your first month of service. Uh, are there any failures that you can point back to that you see now as setting you up for a later success? Oh yeah, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, so my my the year I finished my master's degree, twenty ten. Um, so I was Sorry, that was my wife's question. So she was like, <laughs> give me the. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so so the year I finished my master's in twenty ten was right in the middle of when. Um, people who have been in Texas for a long time will remember this, that the, the uh, legislature cut all the school funding. And so we were seeing BAM programs cut director positions and not fill departing director positions and jobs were quite scarce. And at that point I had been teaching, you know, on a private and adjunct level for like 10, 12 years. I had a master's degree in percussion performance. I, I teched drum corps and I have a gold medal in WGI and I thought all of that meant that maybe I could be fairly selective in what jobs I was looking for. I really didn't want to teach band, so I wasn't applying very much to jobs that required that. But there weren't very many jobs open. And I interviewed for three or four jobs in DFW and Waco um, and didn't get offered any of them. And really wanted to live in Austin, really didn't want to live anywhere else. And uh, and like literally I couldn't find a job. I had this amazing pedigree and all this experience and I couldn't find a job. <laughs> but, and so, and that was terrifying. You know, finally in like mid-July, Juan Carrera called me and said, I, I, I need a, a pit tech and private lesson teacher next year. Like I hear you're still available. Would you be willing to do it? And that got me back to Austin and into, you know, the North Austin band scene. And then the next year, Eastview High School um, opened up and I was right there. And and opening that school, having that opportunity, let me experiment a lot because I was in a school district working with just freshmen and sophomores. I got to build the program from the ground up. I was in a school district, you know, that while it had a long history of successful music programs, wasn't currently particularly, you know, noteworthy. So I got to experiment a lot. I got to do things the way I wanted to. Um, I got to do a lot of research into equipment and, and, you know, my own, create my own curriculum and, and had worked with directors who were happy to let me just take the reins. And all of that meant that I really learned how to do those things well. And so I was well positioned to be successful when an opportunity in a really stellar um, district like Leander ISD opened up. And had I gotten a job the year before, I probably never would have taken, you know, that Eastview position. Uh, I wouldn't even have applied for it because I wouldn't have wanted to and et cetera. And none of, none of the rest of it probably would have happened, you know. And now the thing that I'm sort of known for, which is winning the PAS IPEC with my middle school group, that never would have happened. 
and none of the rest of it, you know, probably wouldn't have met my husband, wouldn't have this little guy. Uh, so yeah, what felt like a massive failure at the time really set me up long-term for the road that I, that I have traveled since then. Um, and I'm quite happy with my life. So, you know, no regrets. That's great. Is there, um, in that same vein, you know, um, is there any pieces of bad advice that you hear given often? Oh God. Uh, do what you, (laughs) do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I hate that. I, I can't stand it because it's so, um, it's not only a cliche, it's such false advertising. Um, when the thing that you love becomes the thing that you have to do, very often you end up resenting it. And I think the notion that we have to be passionate about our jobs or we're not doing the right things with our lives or we're not good workers or et cetera. Like I started reading this website called Ask a Manager, which is an advice column about work situations. I'm a bit of an advice column junkie and I had gotten tired of Dear Prudy. Uh, so I moved on to Ask a Manager. Also because um, when I started this job at Cambridge University Press, I'd never worked in an office environment before. And Ask a Manager is really great for helping you understand professional office norms. Um, So beware band directors out there who want to leave band directing. It's a whole different world when you step foot in an office. Um, But anyway, so I started reading um, Ask a Manager and now I completely forget where I was going with this story. Oh, yeah, so the person who writes Ask a Manager, she is very adamant about the fact that work is just that. You trade your effort for money. That is what work is. That is that is your loyalty to your company. And, and so, um, especially as educators, we uh, are part of this narrative where... You know, it's, it's the Superman complex where we're supposed to be in it for the kids. And if we want money for what we're doing, we must not care about the kids and et cetera, et cetera. No, uh, any, any parent out there, if we said, okay, go to work and not get money or get less money or not get this piece of equipment that you're supposed to need to do your job, they look at us like we're crazy. You know, if, if we flip the, the, the bill on them, so to speak, but um, work is is trading your effort for money, and we have to remember that. Um, another one I hear is that you have to do it for the kids, or you should stay for the kids, or you owe it to the kids. Like, okay, yes, at some point we do owe our certain uh, a certain level of loyalty to our students because we ask for their loyalty. Like that's a two way street. But at some point, someone will take care of the kids. There will be another teacher. They will hire someone else. They may be different from you. They may not be as good as you. They will not do things the same way as you, but the kids will be okay. So I I hear a lot of educators that really waffle on like the best personal or professional decision, or they stay in a position, you know, two, three, five, ten years too long because they're doing it for the kids or what about the kids? Like the kids will be okay. And ultimately, I know when I left, I, I stayed in for a year after my daughter was born and my heart wasn't in it. I wasn't putting in the extra hours. I didn't feel like I could be a good percussion director without committing 12 hours a day. Maybe that's a personal failing that I couldn't figure out how to do it in less. I know Hector Heal does it in a lot less, and I have mad respect for him that Mm -hmm. he's able to do that. But I didn't feel like I was able to be effective in the same way. And I left in part because I knew the kids deserved better. 
um, they deserve someone who could commit 100% to them. And I didn't feel like I was able to do that because I wanted to actually see my child grow up, you know? I wanted to go home and have dinner at night. You know, kids, little kids go to bed at 7 p.m. Most band directors aren't even out of the band hall at 7 p.m. Um, so I, I think that's that's the other half of it. When you're doing it for the kids, sometimes you're you're really not doing the best job for the kids. So anyway, that's like two or three different terrible pieces of advice that I hear sometimes within our profession. But the, the number one thing of, of like, <laughs> do what you're passionate about and you'll never work a day in your life. God, it's so not true. And it's so damaging. It's this horrible narrative that we have in the U.S. I don't ever hear that here in the U.K. Like, there is absolutely no notion, like, our, our team works pretty hard, um, but that we all have great work-life boundaries. And because of that, we work harder at work because we have great work-life boundaries. Um, and we're more efficient and we're able to jigger our work in the way that works best for us. Um, and so anyway, I think there is something to be said for the person who's good with numbers and decides to become an actuary because it's stable and it pays really well and they want to have a big family. And, uh, and they're happy to be a little bit bored at work and yet get paid really well for it. That's wonderful. Or the person who doesn't want to care that much about work when they go home from work and they become the grocery delivery person, but they still pay the bills and, you know, go to their kids' soccer tournaments on the weekends. You know, I doubt that they're passionate about grocery delivery, but there's nothing wrong with that. They could be passionate (laughs) about something else on their own time, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, again, thank you for your time. Um, you know, if, if there's like any last, any last, uh, words that you want to give out any other pieces of advice? Um, I know we covered a lot in that, so. (laughs) Oh gosh. Uh, all, all you teachers out there, uh, you're amazing and you're doing fantastic work. And I feel so terrible for you that you've become political pawns. Um, and no matter what your stance on politics is, uh, the teaching profession is undoubtedly getting used right now and that's not fair. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I, I feel for you guys. I'm scared for you guys. I'm terrified of the day I find out that my first former colleague has the virus and I'm terrified of the day we start losing colleagues to the virus. So please take care of yourselves. Um, please remember that nobody will look out for you and your family, but you do what you have to do. And um, absolutely, if anybody needs help figuring out the online thing, I am happy to uh, to be in touch. Um, my website is emilyatannert.com. So that's my maiden name, T-A-N-N-E-R-T. Uh, and there's a contact form on there and uh, you can get a hold of me that way. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to, to support in any way that I can for anyone who needs it. And I wish you all the best of luck. Uh, navigating this school year and the many changes that I'm sure will occur between now and next May or June. Well, thank you so much for taking the time um, and working this out and wish you and your family the best. And um, hopefully we'll be seeing each other very soon again and we'll have to do this again. Um, The baby will be a little bit older and it'll be nice to see a full head of hair and (laughs) that'll be exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Likewise, uh, and uh, everyone, every percussion out, educator out there should attend Virtual PASIC. And hopefully I'll see you all at Virtual PASIC in November. Definitely. Well, we'll put that in the show notes and we'll uh, be sure to advertise and put that out there. So, <laughs> alrighty. Well, thank you so much for your time and appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Thanks again for your support of Different Strokes, a percussion podcast. For advertising space, please contact us at info at dspodcast.org. That is info, I-N-F-O, at dspodcast.org. Our production and sound design is by Miguel Perez. Instrumental music was written and composed by Miguel Perez. Our introduction music was written and composed by me, Joseph McMorrin, and our post-production is made possible by Miguel Perez. Different strokes may be found on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you to our sponsors and their support, and please visit our website at www.dspodcast.org. Until next time, hit subscribe, and thanks for listening.